My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Ray Naylor. In addition to his work as a foreign service officer in Kosovo, Ray is also an author of speculative fiction. He was named by Locus Magazine as one of the up-and-coming masters of the genre, writing and science fiction and fantasy. He's also written in many other genres, from mainstream literary fiction to comics to detective novels. I first found Ray in in Of All Places on Twitter. Or actually, that's not entirely true. We met on Twitter because I wrote a review of one of his short stories. It's called Fire in the Bone, and it was first published in Clark's World magazine in January of 2019. The story knocked me out of my chair. It was so deeply emotional and challenging and provocative. It looked at the ways in which imperial culture and colonialism impacts everyone's sense of well-being and impacts everyone's ability to be truly human. And there's a wonderful, surprising twist at the end that truly, and pun intended here, cuts right to the bone. From there, Ray and I have formed a wonderful correspondence. And when I launched this show, I knew I had to have him on as a guest. And with some patience and persistence, he finally, I finally got through to him and got him to say yes. What you'll hear today is a wonderful conversation exploring culture, humanity, identity, what it means to move from binary thinking to triadic thinking and what becomes possible when we approach who we are and what we are and how we are with more nuance and depth and creativity. I hope that after hearing this conversation, you'll spend time with Ray's writing. He writes stories that ask us to look at what it is to be alive in the world in ways that I that no other writer I've encountered does. He's remarkably creative and talented and just an incredibly smart and thoughtful human being. So, let's get settled in. And hear what Ray has for us. Ray, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Yeah, thank you, Andy. Yeah. Good. It's so good to be here. Right before we jumped on, you're just sharing this wonderful story about taking your daughter to see the ocean for the first time or the sea for the first time in Albania and how she just sort of went, she saw it as she was in your arms and just went, ah, yeah. (laughs) And, And like, it just was really moving to me as also as a father, we might, for those listening in, we might hear my daughter playing in the background, but there's this, this quality of sort of encountering 
the beauty of life that particularly in these moments of collective fragility and collective kind of puncturing of our, our bubbles of insulation for those of us who've had the privilege of having those bubbles that, that actually it feels to me like we need that kind of childlike awe and wonder even more if we're going to adapt and evolve through whatever comes next. And, uh, and I really encounter you as a writer and as a thinker who is entering into those spaces. Your stories, the first story I read of yours, Fire in the Bone, left me with that feeling. I was just like, oh, man. And not because it was all like, in fact, it was quite a challenging story that looks at some pretty brutal themes, but it did so in a way that mm-hmm. tuned me into that spark of possibility and fire that burns in all of us. And uh, mm-hmm. I'd love to just hear you as I share that back with you. I'd, I'd love to hear your kind of what you're feeling into as, as, as you tap into your own daughter's awe in the midst of all the complexity of our world today. You know, um, it's funny, just, uh, you were, you were talking about that, that concept of having this bubble and it, it made me think of, uh, when I, when I joined the Peace Corps and uh, I moved in with my, my host family, um, I had my own room, which was something that no one else in the family had. Um, mm. but it's a requirement of Peace Corps that Peace Corps volunteers have, uh, their own room. And so I would go in my room and I would, I would start reading a book or something and I would be in there for maybe five minutes at the most. And someone would come and they would knock on my door and, and I, and I would, you know, open the door and they'd say, are you okay? And I'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm just reading a book. And they'd say, okay. And they'd go away. And then, you know, five minutes later, someone else would come in and, and say, you know, Hey, uh, are you okay? And I'd say, yeah, no, I'm fine. And, uh, and it really kind of weirded me out as, as an American who, you know, and I, I should say that when I joined Peace Corps, I went to Turkmenistan and, um, it was the first time I had, I was 27 years old. It was the first time I had ever traveled outside of United States, Mexico or Canada. Mm. Uh, I'd never been able to travel cause I'd never really been able to afford it. Although I'd traveled a lot in the U S and, uh, and really, I just dove right in. I mean, I flew, I flew to Turkmenistan with a brief stopover in Azerbaijan. And I hadn't even been to, like, France, right, before. <laughs> so, yeah. so it was completely new to me. And I, I soon realized that um, the Turkmen had no concept of, uh, of giving someone privacy. Hmm. But to them... Uh, all existence was group existence mm. and um, they spent all their time together. They slept in one room generally or outside on a, on a platform called a top John, which is sort of like a, like a low platform basically together. Um, and, uh, and they were worried because they felt that when someone withdraws from, from that togetherness that they are ill or, something is going on with them and, and they're uh, you know, they need to be looked in on. Mm. And I thought that was uh, at first it was, it sort of went from being slightly sort of irritating as an American, having someone constantly <laughs> sort of ask, are you okay? Are you okay? When you're trying to read a book to being really comforting that, you know, in my host family, there was this, they would never let you be alone. Like they, they, they would, they would always be sort of there with you just kind of going through life together 
And, uh, and I, I soon learned that I could read a book. It was perfectly fine. As long as I read it in the living room with the rest of the family while they did something else. So you were actually allowed to retreat into your own mental space mm. and that's fine. But they, they didn't just didn't have this concept of, you know, it being healthy to be off by, by, by yourself. And I, I thought there was something kind of wonderful about that. Um, certainly a little bit claustrophobic at first, but really a completely different way of looking at the world. And they had this completely different way of looking at the world. And I'm, I am going somewhere, I think, with this. But they had a completely di different way of looking at fun. Mm. Uh, so for an American, I felt like the definition of fun was to do something you had never done before, right? And, and to experience something completely new, to have an adventure. And in Turkmenistan, in the bazaar, they actually sold these cassette tapes that were only the same exact song playing over and over again on both sides <laughs> of the tape. Yeah, yeah. And because the Turkmen idea of fun was really to find something that you really liked and enjoyed, and then just to do that mm. like forever, if possible, right? Like just <laughs> get into the groove of doing that, like listening to that song for like a year, right? And it was just this completely different, just just such a different way of looking at the world. They were the first people that I ever encountered where I actually had a lot of difficulty understanding where they were coming from because the culture was so very different from our own. Mm. But what I also quickly realized about them was that um, they are the ones that participate in what is probably the dominant global culture. And we as Americans have a culture that is very strange. Mm. Um, mm. The values that the Turkmen have, values of, of family and, and loyalty and, and closeness to one another and, um, and these very rigid and sometimes constraining structures, um, but also supportive structures um, mm. where you don't give up on anyone, right? They're always your brother. They're always your cousin. They're always your parent. Um, you don't talk badly about your family. You're always together. Those, those, structures are, are sort of what drive most of human culture and that the innovation in the United States of individualism in some ways is an aberration uh, in many places in, uh, in the world. And even in the United States is, is more of a value of the North, right? Mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. Of the South. And in fact, Southerners and Midwesterners in the United States do very well as Peace Corps volunteers because they better understand uh, those structures. Um, whereas they, they say the people from the West, uh, like California, like myself, or, or from the East Coast, uh, struggle a little bit yeah. with the ideas of, of, of a sort of enforced togetherness and of, um, you know, the idea that if you don't say goodbye to the oldest member of the family when you leave a party, like if you don't seek them out in the house, wherever they are, uh, before you leave, you've insulted the whole family, mm. right? Um, mm. This is something that a lot of Southerners understood instinct instinctually. Like you say goodbye to grandma, you know, you only leave the house without without thanking her. Um, but that you know I, that I had to learn, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but you were talking about being together, and that's that's sort of what it made me think of is. Um, when I look back on my Peace Corps experience, I get this incredibly warm feeling of being with people 
um, in a way that I never had been before and that I have not been since. Um, I had no access to the internet. I did not have a cell phone. And I lived and breathed this intimate, close-knit experience for two years with people who were very different from myself at first and then people that I effectively became very much like after mm-hmm. having lived with them for a couple of years. And I came to value quite often the same, this, you know, a lot of the same things. Yeah. There's a couple things I want to underline. One, I just really enjoyed the, the, the Turkmen approach to fun. Like let's make a cassette tape with the same song on both sides. <laughs> I've been, I've been experiencing that a version of that with my two and a half year old daughter who has this particular, mm-hmm. there's a particular songwriter, a Scottish songwriter named KT Tunstall. And, and there's actually even, there's a few songs she really likes by KT, but there's mm-hmm. one in particular called Strange Sight that was written for a Disney movie. And uh, literally every time we get in the car to go somewhere, she wants to listen to that song at least five times. And, uh-huh. and what, I, what I had to overcome to really be present with her in that, and, I, and I, what I've discovered on the, there's this way in which you can imagine, an American can imagine like, oh God, that sounds so tedious Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i've actually really discovered a path into joy with that song with her because i can see how much fun she's having and and i guess like what i'm what i'm hearing in what you're describing is this way in which this wonderfully weird individualistic culture of ours that uh, that uh, that american culture that you describe so well has certainly produced a lot of fruits, a lot of creative fruits, a lot of uh, technological fruits. But in, in the process, we have kind of, we often kind of put ourselves in our own room. And <laughs> I feel like I wish, I wish collectively that we, as a species, as like a globe, had more, uh, like there's almost like a kind of angsty teenager quality of like if, if, if another country of Canada was checking and be like, Hey, America, are you okay? We'd be like, back off. Right. You right. Know? And it's like, you know, I hear that actually the adventure that you thought you were going on this, this very, it's a very American story of, I'm going to go on an adventure and be the hero of this journey and learn new things was actually, it sounds like there's a bit of, of letting go was this adventure of actually leaning into the ways in which you're not an individual, the ways in which you are part of, a collective and that becoming more woven into that collective actually was paradoxically quite freeing and liberating for you. It put you, gave you comfort and safety and ease in some ways. Is that right? I, I feel like that's, yeah, that's right. Um, I feel like when I was growing up in the suburbs in, in California, um, so I was born in Quebec, uh, as, as mm. you know, and, and then mm-hmm. I moved to California with my, with my mother when I was, uh, two or three. And I grew up in a, a town called Fremont, which is a pretty, at that point was basically becoming a part of Silicon Valley. Um, yeah. It still had some of its character left, but, but it was, it was being erased um, pretty, pretty quickly by development. When I grew up, when I was growing up, I always felt like I was very alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I come from that generation of, of kids who were latchkey kids, whose parents were were gone a lot, um, who watched a lot of television right <laughs> after school, 
yeah. who were extremely disconnected from from others. Um, had friends, of course. I had a lot, a lot of really good friendships, and my friends were in a sense sort of a replacement, I think, for family in, in, in many ways. Um, but I grew up feeling really isolated, and I also grew up feeling very alien. I think, like, always having a sense of myself as being a little bit strange and thinking too much, maybe, and and, mm-hmm. and some other things. And when I when I went to Turkmenistan, there were two things that were that were liberating, as you were sort of saying. Um, one was, I was completely alien. And I did think completely differently from everyone around me in Turkmenistan. And I had a really good excuse now, which mm. was that I, I'm a foreigner. And so I wasn't expected to think like them. And they thought I was weird, but I had a reason for being weird. <laughs> um, and that's, there's something really comforting in that because it, it sort of allowed me to just be myself. And whatever I did was okay with them because I was just you know, the American and, and, and a stranger in a sense in their, in their society. And so they kind of gave me some leeway. And the second thing that I learned was that human connection is incredibly important to mm. me. Mm. Uh, and that I was a little bit starved for it uh, as, as a, as a kid growing up in a very individualistic society. Right. Mm. And, um, and I love, I came to love this, what I would say it's, it's interesting that you make this comparison with, with what it's like to be around a child, because what I think it is, is a constant low grade interaction with someone, (laughs) right? Yeah. Where there's not necessarily any sort of clear communication going on. You're just both kind of doing stuff in the same space a lot with a toddler. For example, they're kind of running around with a lot of, of things going on in their head, some of which you understand and some of which you do not. And you are also making coffee or cleaning their dishes or doing whatever. And you're interacting with them and then you're moving back to your own thing. Well, that, that experience is a lot like what it's like to live in a Turkmen family. Mm. Uh, you're all always around one another, sort of doing your own things and your chores and your things, your homework and watching television, maybe together or drinking tea or, or, you know, just sitting and reading a book kind of in the same room sometimes interacting with each other, sometimes not. And I just found this to be extraordinarily comfortable, actually, and and comforting. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I really relate to, I love your insight that going a place where you have full permission to be foreign and be alien and be strange, and therefore it removes this pressure to try and fit in. I'm an only child. I was also a, a latchkey kid. Both my parents worked. I spent a lot of time in my own head. And um, I think there's a lot of upside. Like I'm grateful in a lot of ways for that time because it feels feels like that that alone time can be can be fertile territory for imagination. It can also be a place of isolation. And it was for me sometimes. But I agree. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. No, I, that's that makes perfect sense. I I think it's both. It's um, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. And the individualist culture is a bit of a double-edged sword as well. It actually has some amazing qualities to it. I think you pointed some out earlier. You talk about innovation and, and sort of being in your own head and, and having the permission to sort of um, bring new ideas to the table. I mean, um, the flip side of Turkmen culture, of course, is that uh, it was ex- also extraordinarily conformist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, extraordinarily hierarchical 
you you didn't talk back to teachers you didn't talk in class mm. right my students were shocked when i would ask their opinions about things um they needed to be told what to think um and when i wouldn't tell them what to think about something it was extremely distressing to mm. them mm. sometimes sometimes so distressing that i would actually just tell them what to think about something because I could tell that it was causing them suffering to be told to make their own choice. And, and so I kind of had to limit myself, you know, sometimes I would just say like, okay, well it's this way because of this, you know, rather than trying to continuously make them struggle (laughs) to find their own answers Uh, because I just, I had to find a balance between growth and pain. Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's what, what, so what that's, I'm so glad you, you shared the, the kind of yin yang energy we're tuning into of like, on the one side, you have the, the really um, potent, creative, pointed, sharp, uh, driving individualistic energy. And on the other sort of side of that, you have the, you have the kind of grounded, connected, comforting, conforming energy of the group. And I, and what I'm sort of just noticing right now is the way that we often in our, in our collective conversations, position those two things as polarities that Mm -hmm. either you're going to be part of a really conformist conservative culture. That's also gives you lots of safety and protection, or you're going to be part of an individual individualistic culture that gives you more room to roam, but also puts you more at risk of being isolated and cut off. And I just mm-hmm. I, like, it seems to me that that polarity, that binary is, is actually the, the edge where we as a species might begin to truly evolve um, in a way that allows us to keep being a global species. Because I sense that right now there are some people who, just want to pull us back to uh, uh, to the simple quote unquote simpler times when we lived and that and the way you describe in Turkmen and there are other people who want to completely excise that and just go all the way towards full individualistic separation and I, I wonder instead of that being an either or it's a both and what is does that yeah. does that move anything for you it to- it, it really does and and so something a concept that I've been continuously since university um sort of coming back to is the idea of the hierarchical binary um because there's first of all there's the idea of polarity which structures much of our thought positive negative right male female all of those things Mm. but it's not just about there being a binary there's always a hierarchical element to the binary Hmm. And what do I what do I mean by that? I mean that, for example, when you look at the the male female binary, which is a structuring binary in our culture, um, and actually underpins a lot of the way that we think. If I say to you, equality, right? You can almost guarantee that you can say back the opposite, and mm-hmm. that that is and that is something that we have attributed to the other gender, right? So, for example, if I say strong, immediately weak comes to mind, and you know which side of that hierarchical gender traditional binary that we've set up that's going to fall on. True or not, right? 
it has this way of causing us to divide everything in the world into this system, not just of, of halves, right? But, but a system of where one half is always better than the other. Mm. Always, if it's, you know, strength and weakness, you know, softness, hardness, um, intelligence and emotion. Like every time you say an adjective in English, you can almost gender it, right? Wow. Um, yeah. And find the way that it's been traditionally gendered. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you would have the same opinion, that you would think that that was accurate. But you, you know that mm-hmm. you're... The culture is underpinned by these binaries that are not only binaries and not only are all binaries, I think, completely false, right? Um, but they're also, they have a hierarchical structure that degrades one of the two, right? Yeah. Um, if someone is strong, then someone else is weak. So if men are strong, women cannot be strong because we operate in a, a hierarchical binary system where one binary is the opposite of the other. Of mm. course, we all we all know that men and women are virtually identical to one another, right? Um, that that in fact humans are not very sexually differentiated when compared to a lot of other species on Earth, and that in fact a woman is you know ninety nine point nine 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 etc. You know uh, percent identical to a man, but we create a system in which a woman is an opposite from a man, wow. right? Yeah, and, and then we structure an entire society on these oppositions, and we end up with things like this. We end up thinking, well, we can either have individualism or we can have togetherness, right? And you need to pick a side, and once you pick a side, the other one becomes a bad thing. Yes, right? yes. And I think it is it is a matter of both. And I, I completely agree with you. But there's there's that. I think that binary needs to be broken down, and the concept of these hierarchical binaries and the way to break it down is really just to be thinking about it um, more deeply and be more consistent in the way that we examine our underpinning structures, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things I find really fascinating about all of the debate around gender and one of the reasons that I'm totally supportive of all of the debate around gender is, is I also see it First of all, it's a liberating tool for people who are suffering from being shoved into categories where they don't belong, first of all. But there's also a way in which I think it will help people to think beyond these hierarchical binaries and start thinking about the ways in which um, many things we've thought of as being in opposition are not in opposition, um, if that, if that makes any, any sense. So it makes so much sense. Yeah. The, um, the, I'm really glad you, I'm really excited that you landed on what to me feels like a reminder of the, the, the potency of public engagement with these polarities. Like there's a way in which the engagement itself can produce more suffering. Cause you have some people who are kind of, taking one side or the other and, and and those who have more power in our current structure might take a side that even just them speaking their belief that there are only two genders and uh and men should play a certain role and women should play a certain role can that can be hurtful right and i want to acknowledge that and i want to acknowledge the fact that we can create space for someone to to move towards that polarity and say let's look at that more deeply Let's let, I'm, I'm telling you that I don't, I don't 
my lived experience doesn't connect to that hierarchy that you want to enforce in our lives. What if there's another way? And, and some people will probably in their lifetime never be ready to look at another way. But I also really, you're reminding me that we can trust each other collectively, that there's a possibility in which the having of the conversation, the having of the deeper thinking, the having of the exploration however painful it might be when sort of zoom, if we zoom in with the microscope and we see like, as in any part of evolutionary biology, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, it's gets pretty messy, right? Mm -hmm. Like that sort of Mm -hmm. seems to mirror nature, but that messiness can produce elegance. And, and like, I, I sense that there is a more elegant, more expansive story that doesn't ask that there are, there are men who we call men who I really identify with that masculine energy who might also be able to tune into more of their feminine quote unquote feminine sides and still just be like, yeah, I'm like my physiology, my biology and my psychology all feel aligned in this way. And, 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 and that sort of fits what we think of as like the cis, cis white male, let's say, but at the same time, that person can, can totally peacefully and lovingly coexist with some, with any other number of people who exist upon this spectrum of identity. And that possibility for me is that kind of both end that you're, you're inviting us into that the hierarchical structure has baked into its nature, a quality of combat and oppression. And maybe there's another way to structure these distinctions that bring actually bring us closer together without without paving over the wonderful diversity of form that exists within any of these polarities. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think that, I mean, I think, I think that's right. And I I think that the, um, so I think it was Stephen Batchelor. I was listening to some, uh, talk that he was giving and he was talking kind of, kind of correcting people about the concept of non-self in Buddhism and the sort of misinterpretation of it. And it's uh, directly relates to this because it got me thinking. Um, And the concept of non-self in his, in his interpretation of it, the way that it should be interpreted is to think that you are an individual, right? Unrelated to under other individuals disconnected from the world, a concrete self that doesn't change is fundamentally incorrect. Mm. You are totally embedded in the world and the person you are today is not the same as the person you will be tomorrow and that's something that people understand buddhism is speaking about what they don't understand is that there is another side of non-self and that is to think that you are not an individual completely unique and different from every other instance of individuality around you is also incorrect Yes. Right? You are actually totally unique, right? Completely individual and unlike anyone else. You are also absolutely not disconnected from anyone else in in the world, right? Um, Nor do you have qualities that don't exist in other people. And I think that 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 really taught me something about not just the self- because he brackets it as sort of non with a slash and then self rather mm-hmm. than like 
forward, right? It's non slash self because it can never really be complete either way, right? It's not nothing and it's not self. It's something in between this shifting, moving collection of qualities that is both stable and changing that creates an individual in society, right? And I think if you think about sort of everything in that in that manner, right? What you arrive at is this um, like this concept that I was sort of working out for myself, which is the the moment that you take a fixed position about the world is the moment you begin to be the most incorrect. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't matter what the position is. The moment you, you take a fixed position and you say, this is what I believe is true, that is the moment of greatest error. Mm. And, and the only way to really exist in the world is to be constantly listening to the sound of opposition to your own ideas, to the sort of cacophony of opinions out there about how things might be, and to force yourself to move from fixed positions and shift your thinking when confronted with ideas that seem worthy to you of exploring. And even ones that don't sometimes. Maybe even especially ones that don't. (laughs) Right. And to be able to be open to, to that, you know, idea of, um, of just constant motion of your, uh, in in your thinking, you know, um, Keats called it negative capability. Yes. The ability to live in doubt. Right. And, And not to have to conclude, but to live with uncertainty. Um, I like that a lot. I like that concept um, because I sort of joke to people, you know, uh, the theme of my writing has always been, it's more complicated than that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's not a best-selling theme. Uh, <laughs> I, and I know that you're, you're never going to, you can't make, you know, speed seven or whatever <laughs> with, yeah. with the team being it's more complicated than that but that's every yeah like time, i'm i just got this great image of of like the next sequel to fast and furious is too slow too complicated <laughs> right. yeah like no it's gonna no it's gonna that's not gonna fly in the in the pitch room um it's so, can i add yeah. can i add, add maybe one i'm just like so psyched about what you're inviting us into and and there's just one piece of language that I would invite us to explore even more, more deeply. You said there's sort of this moment where we have to force ourselves to get into motion. And and I might actually like, what I really hear you saying is we have to admit to ourselves that we're already in motion and that, and that everything that we are participating in is both kind of an accretion of all that came before us and an expression of that in the same way that the sort of crest of a wave in the ocean mm-hmm. is an expression of that whole everything that's moving under the surface of that ocean and then mm-hmm. and then like the wave comes back into the into the sort of appears to go back into the ocean again and then the new quote unquote new wave comes out but really that's there's right. this quality in which you're you're spot on we are kind of clinging to and our and our perceptions can sometimes 
confuse us into this, although actually even our senses, if we pay close enough attention, are showing us that everything isn't always in motion. But we're like, mm-hmm. we're clinging to, we want to kind of see a moment and crystallize it. And, mm-hmm. and in our particular culture, sometimes commodify it and productize it and turn it into a thing. But the thing mm-hmm. is just, just another, another kind of uh, expression of the much larger process of flow that we are all partaking in. And we can feel it in our breath, which is allowing us to talk and live. We can feel it in our heartbeat and the way our blood is just coursing through our veins right now. If, if, if I could like put your, your nervous system, if I could look at you in that way, which of course, mm-hmm. by the way, is just one facet of many facets, but if I could like light you up. We'd see all of this energy moving through your body, all of this, all of these, these electrochemical responses happening your thinking is flowing. Like all of this is all always flowing. And the, the force that we're all trying to apply, it seems to me, is actually to, 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 to cling to something quote unquote stable in the midst of that flow rather than give ourselves permission to start surfing and riding and swimming. No, I, that's, that's a really good way to put it. And, and that's, that is exactly, um, that's a, that's a very, that's a, that's of course, what the concept I think of non-self is, is about, right? Because what it recognizes is the existence of the ocean and the existence of, of the wave. Um, there is a wave, right. And there is something unique about that wave and there is something formed about it and there is something complete about it. And yet it's part of something larger than itself and, and, and comes from somewhere and goes somewhere and is always in, in motion. And that's, and that's of course the, the same thing that is true about the self, about us, about um, society and, 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 and all of that. Um, yeah. 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 And I guess it's funny, it's funny talking to you because uh, normally, you know, I don't, I don't, for example, do uh, literary criticism and um, I don't really do uh reviews of, of other people's uh, work in, in the genre that I've sort of chosen to be working in right now. Um, and I am not involved in that because I sort of, um, I take a certain joy in being in participating at a certain level of, of language most of the time, which is you sort of loosely divide language. I guess there would be three identifiable levels, right? There's rhetoric, which is argument and, and, uh, and anything from as simple as gesturing to you to come over here to making a complex argument. Right. And then Mm -hmm. there's poetics, which is constructing complex tools for communicating, um, with one another. Um, and I mean, of course, larger than just poems, but that's sort of probably where some of it started with, with humans. Mm. Uh, Mm. And then there's hermeneutics, which is the analysis of meaning of texts and I, I really put myself very much in the place of the of poetics, mm. um, because as a writer, I don't feel like it's my job to be conducting rhetoric in my work, i.e., telling people what I want them to believe or feel, and I don't think it's my job to be conducting analysis of text. I really think that my job is to create things that are new to build something. And what I think I'm building when I'm 
writing a science fiction story or a poem is a machine uh, for thinking about Ooh. a thing. So, so I, this is what, and this is what I think poetics is. And this is what poems are certainly. Right. And this is I think what short stories and novels all are. They are machines built by people, tools to use, to think more clearly about things that are very difficult to think about. Um, and it's the difference between rhetoric is just walking through a landscape and picking up a rock and using it. But poetics is shaping something mm. in order to be able to more finely put it to use, to hold it, to return to it. But it doesn't, it's not the end product. It isn't what the tool creates. It's, it is the tool. And, um, a really good example of this, I feel like, is this, uh, the, you know, the, the Ezra Pound poem um, in a station of the Metro. I actually right? don't don't know that poem. So this is a two line poem. It's two lines, uh, you said? Two lines. And yeah. the poem is the poem's title is in a station of the Metro. The poem is the apparition of these faces in the crowd. Petals on a wet black bow <laughs> and this poem this this defines for me what poetics is because this poem for me is a tool for thinking about the world in a completely new way that did not exist before i heard the poem and that i am now gifted with in my sort of arsenal right or Arsenal is a bad word, I think, for in my in my box of of tools that I keep with myself. When I think the apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bow, it gives me the ability, right? I I, I can now actually chisel at something, and I mm -hmm. can find mm. something in the metro, right, or in a crowd of people that I could not have found before. I had this tool that Ezra Pound mm. created. Mm. And this is kind of like what I feel like is my job as as a writer of of fiction, um, and and theorists do this as well. I think um, it's the, the job is to create these these systems, these machines, these engines, these tools to help people to think and see the world in a way that they could not have before that tool existed. Yeah. And what's so wonderful, I love the distinction you're making about, about poetics as the creation of tools or machines or instruments maybe um, for listening and attending to reality more deeply. And, and what I really appreciate about that distinction, there's lots I appreciate about it, but one thing that's coming up for me is the way in which the that poem, for instance, that two-line poem, I can already feel it like I don't know what it means. It has a mystery in it. It has an invitation in it. It has uh, images in it. It has a shape to it that's shaped now like interacting with the shape of my mind or my thinking. And, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so it, it, it's, it, it is generative. It's like every time the poem is read or spoken aloud, it is mm -hmm. 
a new expression. It's a new application of the instrument and that both the person applying it and the person hearing it have the possibility of learning something or experiencing something more deeply than they were capable of or able to but before the moment of expression. That's, that's, that's exactly, exactly it. Um, for me, I mean, that's exactly what I feel like my, my job is, uh, as, as a writer is to make, make things that, that make change. Right. Um, I mean, there's a definition of information, famous def- definition of information is a difference that makes a difference. <laughs> I um, love yeah. Right. And I would say that uh, a better definition of that and an improvement on that definition is information is a difference that makes a difference to a difference with the third difference being the individual, right? Because you're part of the process too. So it's a change that is distinct, right? That, that creates a change in a changing subject, uh, subject, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's the, and that, that triad, that triadic structure gets away from some of the binary thinking and it also allows you to see that, you know, when you, let's say, if you read a story that changes the way that you think about the world and then you create something or you act in a way that causes someone else to change the way that they think about the world, et cetera, et cetera, right? You have this chain of, of dependent causation or whatever you want to call it. You can, you can improve the world in this way. Uh, you can allow people to or help people to see things a little bit more clearly but more but more importantly for me as a writer to be honest is um it helps me to see more clearly yeah right um it's it's a selfish act honestly writing because it helps me to to just pull in all of this incredibly dense material of existence and have a have a set of mechanisms with which I can synthesize it and get, it gives me a goal for what to do with it to make it interpretable and, and readable for someone else. Um, and to help them then have something new that they can then pass on or, or just use in their own life. Um, but it gives me also the same thing, right? I, I get the same thing from, from creating it and I get more from creating it in many ways, probably than my readers would get out of it. Yeah, but, um, yeah. There's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's, it's, I was sort of trailing off there. <laughs> I, I'm not very good at coming to coming to ending uh, points. <laughs> oh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna debate you on that one. Your stories often end in ways that are deeply evocative and provocative, and uh, if not definitive, certainly uh, powerful. So, and I'm feeling like I'm encountering that now in our conversation. Like for instance, this 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 difference that makes a difference in a difference framing, which is now triadic as opposed to binary. Uh, well, let's use this story that brought us together, fire in the bone. Right? You wrote this really. I mean, I just it was part of uh, an issue of Clark's World magazine, which brings together really great uh, speculative fiction and nonfiction, thinking about all the people who are writing about and thinking about and feeling about all of the kind of stuff that you and I are talking about. And, and reading your story, which is just, I, I, I don't want to say too much about it because it, it hinges on a wonderful, a wonderful and scary surprise. 
But uh, reading it was so evocative for me. It was so evocative that I felt I needed to share it publicly with other people, which I did. And Mm -hmm. in the sharing of it publicly, you and I were able to connect because you now, like, it was almost like that, that difference your story made in me moved me to then share another piece of information, which moved something in you. And now here we are having this really rich exploratory question about what it is to be a difference and make a difference in a world just filled with, with complexity. Like how do we both live with all of that complexity, but then also work with it and trying to interpret it and try and share it and try and be with it. And so I just want to like honor that your story that I'm sure the writing of that story, which I love that point that you're making that, the act of engaging with the density of life and and working with it to produce an artifact, that process is in and of itself an, is, is poetic. It is in and of itself, even if the quote-unquote final product is a quote-unquote failure, the process mm-hmm. is really rich. And then the quote-unquote product, which of course is just an expression of the process, lands in other people and starts new processes. Yeah. Right. New, new patterns of thinking, feeling, behaving. Uh, And, and I just like, I'm just, I just really want to mirror back to you that, that your writing, I can only speak for myself. Although I noticed lots of other people, uh, you know, you've won a number of awards, you've gotten some great praise in, in the community. So to take those as data points that your writing is, an expression of exactly what you're describing. Like it is serving as an instrument for deepening other people's ability to relate to reality with more nuance and complexity to start to move away from an either or to a both end or to maybe even this, I don't know what we call it, this triadic way of thinking, you know, like there's something really awesome in that. So I just want to like honor that and you and say, thank you for that. Thank you, Andy. That's, that's, that's kind of, very kind of you to say. I mean, I think that, first of all, I take really seriously the idea that, that uh, um, the artifact, and that's a really good word, actually, uh, the artifact doesn't exist in, except in conversation, mm. right? Um, mm. so, so stories are not complete unless they find a reader, and the reader and the writer together have a conversation. And William Sloan is a really, uh, one of my favorite writers. He said, you know, um, writers need to remember that writing is a conversation, but it's not one person talking to many people. It's always a conversation only between two people, Mm, mm. a particular writer and one particular reader who is just as individual as that writer. I'm expanding a little bit on what he said, but basically the idea is that, you know, there the text is never the same twice. The artifact of fire in the bone for you is not the artifact of fire in the bone for me because I'm only one reader of, of what I wrote <laughs> yeah. or for anyone else who read it, right? That story is not, is non-identical to itself. It doesn't exist anywhere in the world except jointly in the mind of the writer and the reader. And that's the great magic, I think, of, of poetics and, um, and of, of writing in general and communication, right, is that that it really is this thing that we did together. It's not that, you know, I wrote the story 
and then it came to you as this little package and you opened up the package and you got this gift. It's, it's really that like you and I came together as writer and reader with our experiences that we had had previous to that moment, met and had a conversation, even if I couldn't hear your side of the conversation. (laughs) And the, the effect of that conversation was the artifact of fire on the bone as it is to you. Right. Um, and, and to us, and it's different for, for everyone who reads it. Um, and I take this really seriously and I keep telling people that, um, you know, uh, I try to say thank you as much as I, as, as I can to readers who, who reach out and, and say something about my work. Um, precisely because I do believe that it's, it's a conversation and that we did it together mm. Mm. and, and a story finding that reader who can complete it and who doesn't just skim it or, or not get it or, or whatever is this amazing piece of magic. It's, it's time travel. Right. And, and all the other crazy things together. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever read, um, the Peloponnesian war, right. The, um, this sort of one of our first histories as humankind, probably. I haven't. But the amazing thing, the amazing thing about, about Thucydides is, is he speaks to you as if he is sitting in the room with you, right? Um, he's, he's speaking from 2,500 years ago. And he's talking to you in a language that you immediately recognize about things that seem incredibly familiar. And, and it's just such a piece of magic. It's so overwhelming sometimes when you read, when you read those things that, that this person is still here right? They're still there. Um, some part of them survives death and the destruction of their culture and, and all of these other things and all this change and comes to you communicable, right? Um, and is able to speak. And, and it's, you know, and, and I use communicable sort of purposefully, right? Because it is, it has a sense of, of the exchange of bodily fluids right of a physical (laughs) of 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 some kind of because it can actually produce action right it can it can change the way you you act in the world and so it is almost physical um and that's that's magic i i feel so incredibly um grateful to have had whatever it is that combined in my experiences that allowed me to do this for some period of time and to create these artifacts with people, um, I feel really grateful, and uh, mm. and uh, and I feel really overwhelmed by the by the magic in the process. I get up most mornings at five in the morning, and I write for as long as I can till until Lydia wakes up, and uh, <laughs> I get her up, and um, and we start spending our time together. Uh, and, and I do it because. It, it's it's a way for me to listen to the world. It's a way for me to have these conversations with people, and I and I really, um, I really believe in the in the purpose of it and in the magic of it. I mean, I think it is the thing that takes us outside of ourselves, and it's the thing that proves that the individual can be somewhat immortal, right? When they participate in the the ongoing sort of exchange of meaning right which is life yeah all levels man i you're opening we're kind of 
coming up on time, which makes me really sad because I'm just so filled with with joy right now at, at having this conversation. And you're opening a door for me that I I want to maybe try and articulate before we attempt to to let this wave unfold in other people's experience once they listen to it later. There's there's some way in which what Thucydides did in writing the history of the Peloponnesian War and what you do and every other artist or creator or or we might say uh, artifactor, <laughs> like what that process is, is actually is actually a description of what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. Like there's a way in which Thucydides is with us in, in, in the translators who translated Thucydides are with us and the people who, who fought and killed and died and conquered in that war are with us. There's this sort of a, the sort of sense that actually all of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, whether we're doing in the way that you're doing a really conscious engagement with this meaning making and, and sort of the conversational nature of our lives, all of us by virtue of simply living are in conversation with each other. We are, we're leaving artifacts behind however, quote unquote, uh, however, quote unquote, uh, high or low they are, right? Like there's all these other binary distinctions we could, we could get into about what's valuable art and what's not. And that's all kind of BS, but like, there's just a sort of way you're, what, what you're inviting me into in this moment is the sense that actually all of us are in this process, whether we know it or not. And that the more we can be consciously aware that our unique individual life, which is, is part of the vast ocean is also this wonderful, beautiful expression that shapes the whole ocean. And that gives the ocean a kind of shape that then speaks to future waveforms, to future lives. Mm -hmm. ah, it's just a wonderful, I want to try and move through the world like that more, whether or not I'm sitting down to write. I, I think there's some, something else that, you know, another, another concept that's connected to that. And I, I really love that, that concept. And that's, I, I believe it. I do. Um, because it actually is the truth. I think like uh, it, it's, but there's something else that I think that we, as we moving through this really difficult moments, 2020, yeah. you know, and everything that's happened in this particular year, which is a, a very difficult year. All years have their struggle, but this one has been tough. And, and, there's something else about that, about language. And that is that at some point in our history as a race, human beings made a choice. And the choice they made was to trust one another, to build societies and exchange meaning with each other, despite the risk of being lied to, uh, despite the risk of being used by other human beings, etc., in order to better survive and to build better lives for themselves and that fundamental trust that bond which is language right and communication with one another um, has become more and more sophisticated as we've gone sort of through the years and actually has is is in, in a sense an evolution right in itself mm. Or a species. This allowed us to do more and more sophisticated things. But I think what we should 
really pay attention to is that at some moment in the sort of what they what what uh, someone called what is it, the, uh, the 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 dark backward right the the time before anyone can retrieve human beings made a fundamental choice and that choice was to trust one another to form larger and larger groups of trust mm. Mm. and to use those groups and those bonds with each other to live better and that's worth coming back to it's worth coming back to this idea that that at the root of all of our communication is a bond between one another of trust mm. Mm. and wow. and that is that's i think the thing that we need to get back to the fact that that this this is fundamentally fundamentally our ability to speak to one another right now depends on an enormous amount of trust of our ancestors trusting one another and we are the physical embodiment and the and our position in the world right as like the waveforms or whatever part of the system you know that our individual existence right now is is the trace of the trust that was built between through language yeah oh my god yeah that feels so good to hear you speak that out loud there's this there's there's power in reminding ourselves that that we are connected to an incredibly long complex beautiful messy lineage lineage of other individuals who have done their best or not but have done have made choices that are still rippling with us today. And now we have a choice to make. We all, we, every day we have choices to make about how do we pick up those threads? How do we weave them anew? How do we weave new tapestries that are even more intricate and beautiful and interwoven? Yeah, that's beautiful, Ray, thank you. That feels like a really awesome place to land as we both enter back into this big tapestry that, that all of us are a part of. Thank you, Andy. This has been, uh, it's been really a joy to talk to you. As I said, I, I am sort of at the outset, maybe before we started on the main part, I, I'm not really used to speaking like this precisely because, you know, I, I've chosen like a, a different kind of, of instrument for, for communication, one that allows me to, to listen as much as I can. And, and but it, it does feel good to, to have this conversation, um, that's a little more on the hermeneutic yes. level, yes. the analytical level about what it is that I'm doing on the poetic level. And, and this feel, felt really rewarding. Um, and uh, I'm glad that we found each other uh, in all possible places on, on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I know. A space in which I feel deeply uncomfortable. And, and, and I, I, I can't think of how many times I've thought, I really need to just delete this account and stop being here. But uh, but this is proof that that even in those very mundane social media spaces, you can really find uh, very deep uh, connections with people. Yeah, sometimes. yeah. There, there's. I love, I'm so glad you shared that. It is kind of hysterical. There is some there's some flavor of irony in that um, that we don't have time <laughs> to un, unpack. But there's just also like this remind, and I I think. There's something about what you speak to, this philosophy of listening to life, 
that enabled that possibility that enabled you to sort of listen to this little micro expression of my, my experience of your work, which, you know, this 200, whatever the number of characters are 200 plus characters. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and, and hear, hear that as the very microscopic pinpoint top of a much larger wave of possibility and sort of lean in and say, thank you. Yes. And let's talk more. Right. Like that, there's a way in which uh, just that act of saying yes and let's talk more, let's learn more, let's hear more, let's listen more to each other feels like a wonderful concrete practice that embodies everything you're talking about. And I hope that people listening today go, yes, and I want to hear more. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and if they do, like I'll include all the stuff in the show notes and all that good stuff. But like if someone listening right now wants to, to hear or read more about your, your work and your writing, what, what's the best place for them to go, to go do that? Where should they zoom to on the interwebs for that information? Well, I've got a website, um, which is raynaylor.net. Uh, raynaylor.com will get you there too. It'll just redirect you, which has a, a lot of my, a lot of my work up there. Um, uh, and, you know, if you just search my name, I think you'll find a lot of links to things because a lot of the magazines publish uh, online. Um, Asimov's has, has done me the honor of publishing me 11 times now, which is kind of extraordinary. Because I just started on this journey in 2015 in science fiction, and, and I don't know how I am deserving of the luck that I've had. And, it, and, and as much as I pour skill and great respect for my craft in, you know, um, it is luck. Uh, to mm. find someone who mm. an editor for example who your stories resonate with that is that is you know uh, a kind of luck so i'm grateful for that but there's a number of different places they can they can look i'd I would start probably at the website which has a full bibliography of everything that i've ever put out into the world as well as a number of stories that you can read um, on the website um, I would mention that Stefan Rudnicki has done some amazing audio versions of the things that I've published at Nightmare Magazine and at um, Lightspeed, which I, I just find I love listening to them because he also brings like this difference and life uh, to stories and makes me see my own work in a, in a different way. He's a real yeah. artist. He is. Yeah, he's a wonderful reader. And I, and I, I, that's a great way. Like, here's what a beautiful literal invitation, like go listen to some of Ray's stories. I think there's a reading of yours on Clark's world that you do of uh, what's the story called the ocean between the leaves. Is that right? Oh, on Asimov's. Yeah. Yeah. yeah on Asimov's. Asimov's. Yeah. And, and um, beyond the high altar and nightmare, I think was that Stefan who read that one? So he reads the intro to that, and then um, I'm just blanking because I don't have notes in front of me of uh, uh, the audio uh, reader who does the rest. But I recently had a story published called Outside of Omaha at Nightmare Magazine, and Stefan does the um, the reading of that, which is phenomenal. I think mm. his reading is phenomenal. Um, I would invite that's a, that's that, that story might be a good place to start because that story actually is very much about. Um, the concept of monstrosity and its relationship to Americanness. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Interesting sort of machine for thinking perhaps uh, about that. Beautiful. Well, I hope uh, for those of you who are listening in, I, I can't speak to the beauty and subtlety and, and impact of Ray's writing enough. I really hope that you go listen or read to some of his stuff. It will absolutely 
make challenge you to think more deeply about what it is to be human, to be alive, to be in this complex world that we all inhabit. So Ray, thank you for this gift of your time and your thinking. Uh, and I trust that this conversation will in and of itself be a, a machine for others thinking as well. And I can't wait to see how it resonates with people and what emerges. Likewise, Andy, thank you for, for all of your time and, and effort in putting this together. And uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's a fantastic idea just to have these conversations with as many people as we can and, and assemble this amazing network of, of, uh, of people thinking deeply and at length. Mm. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. More to come. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.